0: If you lived in the cities around the Mediterranean Sea about 2,000 years ago, and someone told you they were going on a vacation, and they had found the perfect city, the perfect resort for relaxation and natural hot springs, shopping and designer label stores, gambling and bustling casinos, watching professional sporting events, or maybe attending the theater for award-winning plays, you would have immediately known there's only one city that could give you all of that. The city was named after the wife of its founding emperor. Her name was Laodice, and the city was named Laodicea. It was Las Vegas, it was Beverly Hills, it was Chase Manhattan Bank, all rolled up into one. And it wasn't just for Gentiles either. In fact, the Jews in the first century had complained about the number of their kinsmen who had forsaken Palestine for the baths and luxuries of Phrygia, this region of Laodicea. Laodicea was the garment capital of the world. The sheep they bred nearby, very unusual, they were known for having black, glossy, almost violet colored wool. So coveted was this that Laodicean mills produced at least four different kinds of outer garments that were shipped all around the known world. These were the name brands of the first century. Laodicea was also a medical center where people went for healing. The latest inventions would be tried here, the latest treatments known to the ancient world. Laodicea was crazy about physical fitness. That's not all. Laodicea was the banking center of all of Asia Minor. In fact, the citizens were By and large, so wealthy that about 50 years before a letter was written to them that were about to study, an earthquake came leveling some of the buildings and they actually declined an offer from Nero to help them rebuild saying, we don't really need any financial help. We're all right. We'll do it ourselves. They didn't need help from anybody. This wealthy, fashionable, physically fit well-positioned, together-established city. Evidently, they didn't think they needed any help from God either. For one last time, let's dig into the divine mailbag, shall we, and pull out the last of seven letters written by Jesus Christ to a church, this time to the church that mirrored its culture, the church in Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3 Verse 14, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, once again, Jesus Christ signs his name at the beginning of the letter and chooses descriptive phrases of himself that fit the message that he's going to deliver to this particular church. Would you notice there are three of them? The first descriptive title tells us that he is the first and final. He is the conclusive word. He calls himself simply the Amen. The Amen. Amen uh, in the Hebrew language is simply the transliteration of the word for certainty or truth. In the New Testament, our Lord would often use The word, and in your King James Bible, or maybe your New American Standard, whatever you may have, it's translated verily, what? Verily, or truly, truly, amen, amen, transliterated gives us the word amen, or somebody with a deep southern accent, amen, right? Well, Jesus Christ says, I am the amen. I am, as it were, the word of certainty. I am the word of truth. Now when you amen a song, a singer, or a preacher, you're effectively saying, you are telling the truth. And I'm buying into that. I commit to that. So, use it sparingly. Jesus Christ follows this similar description up with another reinforcing title, verse 14. Again, he calls himself the faithful and true witness. He says he is faithful in his consistent witness, not only first in his conclusive word, but he's faithful. In other words, what I'm about to tell you is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, as any witness should do when they enter the witness stand. They will be a faithful witness, that is, they'll only tell the truth. They'll tell you the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And so Jesus Christ says, that's exactly what I will do. I will tell you the truth. In fact, it's interesting that it is the resurrection, is it not, of Jesus Christ, which is the greatest evidence that he was indeed telling the truth. The third and final description, which Christ says about himself, is this. He is the first in his creative work. He refers to himself in the text as the beginning of God's creation, Since since the English translation can be ambiguous enough often to mislead the English reader, the English reader can interpret here that Christ is the beginning of God's creation in that I suppose he was the first created being. However, the Greek word for beginning is the word arche. It doesn't mean he was the first created being, it means he is the source. You could write the word source in the margin of your, of your text. He is the beginning of creation in the sense that he is the one who began it. He began it all. He is the beginning because he started it. It also carries the nuance of source in this word RK. In him is the beginning of creation. Genesis chapter 1 says, say with me, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, everybody else say it with me. Here we go. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He was, at the beginning, the source of its beginning. It's interesting that Colossians chapter 1 will inform us that it is actually the son of God who was the creative agent of that creating moment. Paul writes to the believers in Colossians chapter 1 that Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. There again is another word that can be easily twisted, prototikos. Firstborn literally means or refers to the one who has first place. He is supreme over all of creation. He is sovereign. He is supremely first. That's very likely That already the seeds of Gnosticism will have influenced in its its early uh, moments in this church at Laodicea. Certainly Colossae. They would teach that Christ was a created being. That he was simply one of many emanations from God. Like you and I are emanations from God. And of course the Gnostics claim to have secret higher spiritual power and wisdom. And insight into the things of God. I received a 10, 12 page letter from someone who was very disturbed with me because I was teaching and preaching the full deity of Jesus Christ. And he simply listed texts like these that are easily twisted to prove the view that Christ was a created being, that he wasn't God, but he was created by God. And I didn't particularly think I, he wanted to hear, it, nor I did, did I want to write him a lesson on R.K. and prototokos. His false religion, however, is a misinterpretation of English texts. And maybe you're thinking, well, well Stephen, what if you're wrong? What if you're mistaken? Well, let's suppose I am. If I am wrong about Jesus Christ and that he was only one of God's emanations, like we, I'm still going to heaven forever. But if I'm right, and you deny that he is the incarnate deity equal with the Father who condescended, taking on flesh, he is sovereign Lord, then you're going to hell forever. It is that significant. The Colossians we're evidently stumbling over the deity and eternality of Christ. And so they received their letter from Paul who told the Colossian believers to pass the letter on. After you read that, I want you to pass it on. Guess where? He says in Colossians 4.16, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. Send it along to them. They need to know it too. He is the supreme being over all of creation. He is the source of all that is in him and by him were all things which were created, Colossians 1, 16. So Jesus Christ is saying here at the outset of this letter to the Laodiceans, I am final in my conclusive word. I am faithful in my consistent witness and I am first place in my creative work. Now, here comes his diagnosis, verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. The words Christ uses here are extreme opposites. Ice cold is the word he uses. Freezing and boiling hot. I wish you were either extreme Either extreme has benefit. I wish you were ice cold or boiling hot. When the little girl was picked up after Sunday school, her mother asked her to recite the verse she'd learned. The verse was, many are called, but few are chosen. And it came out like this, many are cold and a few are frozen. <laughs> Maybe you feel like that in here. Maybe you feel, how many of you think it's cold in here? Oh. Uh, it isn't that cold, is it? Well, my mother-in-law tells me you can hang meat in that auditorium, Stephen. It's so cold. Well, here's my, here's my theme verse then. I wish you were cold. This text, by the way, has nothing to do with climate or body temperature. It's a reference that the Laodiceans would fully understand. See, the only downside to living in this incredible city was their drinking water. It was lukewarm. It was brought by aqueduct from Hierapolis, six miles away. And by the time that refreshing water arrived, it was tepid. It was lukewarm. Listen, on a hot day, there's nothing more refreshing than cold water, is there? Even on a cold day, nothing more comforting than a hot cup of tea or or coffee. How do you get lukewarm water out of the tap? You turn on a little hot water and you turn on a little cold water. And you get lukewarm water. Lukewarm is a a wonderful analogy for compromise. the Middle of the road. On the fence. In neutral. You're lukewarm, he says, verse 16, because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold. You're neither comforting or refreshing. I will spit you out of my mouth. Who wants to drink lukewarm water? You ever been so hot and thirsty and you reached into the, got a glass, filled it up on the tap and it was lukewarm, you'd just as soon not drink. Or maybe you stood there a while until the water finally got cold. As thirsty as you were, you'd really rather not drink tepid water. When I visited churches in India, along with Pastor David, and uh, we visited these old churches where everybody sat on the floor and We'd get there, however, as their honored guests, they'd find a couple of rickety folding chairs and somewhere find them, pull them out, and then they'd deliver to us their treasure, a little glass, Coca-Cola. They'd they'd take off the lid, hand it to us, and they'd all stand there and watch us drink this lukewarm Coke. (laughs) Nothing worse than room temperature Coca-Cola. Some churches make the Lord weep Some churches make the Lord angry. Some churches grieve Him. Some churches make Him sick. I find you and your empty religion and your compromise nauseating. These believers were self-sufficient. They were self-enamored, self-absorbed, skin-deep, anemic, They had no interest in providing either comfort or refreshment to anybody around them. And would you notice what they thought they were and what Christ knew they were? Look at verse 17. For you say, you could underline that in your text and draw a line and down a line or two to the next phrase, but you are. You say, you say you are rich. You say you you've prospered and need nothing, but, but this is what you are. You are, he says, poverty stricken. You're you're playing as a lukewarm body, religious games, while the world around you pursues their empty dreams. What's even worse, we would believe From this text, that the church in Laodicea was pursuing the same dreams, the same comforts, the same goals, the same toys, the same stuff, the same lifestyles as the citizens around them. The believer was effectively, absolutely indistinguishable from the world around them in their purpose for living, in their passion. For Christ. And Jesus Christ says to that church and to any church filled with people who are playing games, this this stunning truth, you make me sick. Can you imagine? I think that's why he began it by saying, I want you to know I'm going to tell you the truth and the whole truth. And nothing but the truth. Frankly, I'm a little embarrassed that we add a service to Easter Sunday, possibly communicating a desire to accommodate a religious game. Many pastors I know are excited about Easter. This is the Sunday when attendance records are broken, not me. I wonder if this is the Sunday above all others where the heart of God is broken. Is your presence here today an indication of your curiosity of the gospel and desire to hear what we believe? I'm so glad you've come. Keep coming. Keep listening. Keep learning. Welcome here. Is your presence here today an indication that you believe that God can't see your religious play acting and your make-believe? A lukewarm heart that really can take church and the assembly and the things of God or leave it? Listen to the warning, my friend. Stop playing games with god lukewarm christianity is actually nauseating to the savior who gave his all for you and for me they said we're rich jesus christ said you're wretched they said we don't need anything jesus christ said you're poverty stricken they said, we're prospering. Jesus Christ said, you're blind. No vision for the world, no passion for the Lord. Jesus Christ is telling them the truth, and evidently much of their problem, they ought to say, it, probably stemmed from their comfortable lifestyle and and their material wealth. We struggle with the very same thing in our culture, which is so easily identifiable by the Laodicean culture. So I thought about this. I thought I'd bring two dollar bills along with me. I've just folded them up, and you know, it's interesting. I can put them in front of my eyes, and you're still out there. I can hear you, but I can't see you. The Bible is still in front of me somewhere, but... I can't read it. The world is out there somewhere, but I can't see it. Two lousy bucks blind my eyes. And if I put them in the wrong place, they can keep me from seeing. I wonder how much has it taken to blind you. This is the diagnosis of their true condition. From the one who has the last word from the one who tells the truth, from the one who is sovereign. This is his diagnosis, but our gracious Lord doesn't stop there. He goes to the prescription for their total recovery. Now, it's, it's identified with three features that come out of the culture of Laodicea that they would certainly have understood immediately. In verse 18, Christ says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. In other words, I know you know all about gold. You got so much of it to spare that when you have a natural disaster, you don't have to have the troops come in and the government uh, help out. You, You just empty your pockets and rebuild. I know you understand gold. In fact, you have so much of it in the banking system we learned that when Cicero was traveling through Asia Minor, he waited till he got to Laodicea where he could cash out his letters of credit. You know gold, but you need to get my gold, which is identified as refined by fire. The Bible refers to our purified faith as refined gold. Job said when he suffered that when God had tried him, he says, I will come forth as purified gold. Peter speaks of genuine faith being even better than tested or refined gold. God is saying, be willing to to pay the price for the gold I offer you that comes from tested faith. Christ goes on to counsel them to not only buy gold refined with fire, but to wear white garments of faithfulness. Notice verse 18. So that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Jesus Christ says, in effect, you might be shipping name brand stuff all around the world, but you are naked. You major on garment manufacturing but you're naked. To the eyes of God who sees through us. The symbol of white clothing is used throughout the book of Revelation to speak of the righteous deeds of the saints. Revelation chapter 19 verse 8. In other words, he's saying the, the nakedness of your inactivity and passivity and lukewarmness needs to be replaced with the righteous deeds of those who belong to me. Faith that is genuine. Genuine is demonstrated we are saved by faith alone but true faith works it's demonstrated it's busy it's serving Christ as lord at the end of verse 18 the lord counsels them to pursue one more thing save he says You need to buy from me salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I mentioned earlier that Laodicea was famous for its medical centers. They were especially proud of an ointment they developed from nard to help those who suffered with earaches, and people would come to Laodicea to be helped. They were even more famous, however, for their their well-known tephra phrygia. It was a tablet It was eye powder that was considered in that ancient world capable of helping weak and ailing eyes. The substance was exported all around the world in tablet form and and you'd get your tablets and you'd grind them up and then you'd add a little water and you'd make a salve and you'd cover your eyelids with it to help your eyes. Jesus Christ says to them, you are known around the world for helping people to see, but you are blind. Come, get salve from me. Let me put my truth and my discernment, my grace on your eyes. So that you can see and detect true needs. You can discern true opportunities. You can spot danger. You can identify godly direction. You can make pure and wise decisions. You come to me and I'll, I'll restore your spiritual sight. I will restore your spiritual vision for the things of God and the true needs of the world. Listen, when the church read this letter, it must have sent them reeling. Imagine, can you? getting a letter from the Lord saying, you nauseate me. Can you imagine that? Everybody gathers, got a letter written by Christ to the messenger and then sit there and hear him say, church at Laodicea, you make me sick. Wow. It would have been devastating to read that In reality, we are poor and naked and blind. The Lord compassionately reminds them then in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Isn't that good? He just kind of sticks it in there. Look, the only reason I'm saying this is because I love you. I'm reproving you because I care about you. I'm disciplining those whom I love. The worst thing to ever be is in a position where God leaves you alone. I love you, and I don't want you to live in this condition. And those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Change course. Turn around. Confess your sinful pride and self-centeredness and arrogance and get... Moving, You see, my friends, he's writing Christians here. He's writing to people who had become indistinguishable from their culture. They, they fit in. They related. They never caused anybody any heartburn over the gospel. No trouble. They didn't come across as you know, fanatics for Jesus. And they, they, they weren't atheists. Somebody saw them bow their head before lunch. But they were lukewarm And everyone was comfortable around them. C.S. Lewis wrote it this way. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, it is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. No such thing. Finally, notice the invitation in verse 20. He says this wonderful text. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is an invitation, by the way, to the church. This is still a valid church. They're in grave danger, but there is still hope. Though often this text is used as a text for an evangelistic appeal. It's an invitation from Christ to the church to let him in to fellowship, to eat supper. There were three meals. The first one was a little, little slice of bread and they dipped it in juice, wine. Second meal was on the run, on the road, out in the field. The third one was the long one, dipnion. It was It was where you sat around and talked, fellowshipped, enjoyed one another. That's the word he used. I want to come and eat with you. I want to eat that meal with you where we can linger And talk. Would you notice here that he's knocking? He doesn't break down the door, he doesn't barge in. You know, we talked last Lord's Day about the church of the open door. This is the church of the closed door. They closed Christ out. And the latch is on the inside, and he just knocks. Can you imagine the condescension and humility of the sovereign Lord that in order to have fellowship with not only the corporate church but you and me individually that he would actually knock? This is the door of fellowship, my friend. He waits for you to wake up in the morning and say something to him. He waits for you to read his word sometime during the day. I'm here, would you like to talk throughout the day at any time? Do you need wisdom? I'm here if you ask. I'll I'll shoulder all the cares in your world if you'll cast your care upon me. This This is the mystery of fellowship with Christ. He reminds them then in verse 21, as he often does, That there is coming a day when we will rule with him on the throne. Let me give you two challenges from this letter. First, don't stop halfway. This is what I read here, it's how it strikes me. Easter Sunday is a wonderful testimony of, of Christ who didn't stop, did he? He didn't go halfway. He gave us all. He set his face as a flint toward Jerusalem. He, he, He suffered it all. He went all the way to the cross. He went all the way through the valley of the shadow of death. He went all the way into the grave. He went all the way then to the resurrection and all the way to the ascension, and he will come all the way back. There's no halfway. So the challenge would be for us to do the same, to pick up where we've left off, finish the job, finish the task. Plug back in. Start over. Sign back up. Don't stop. Like Christ. Don't be and go halfway. Secondly, don't settle for half-hearted. There's no, there's no place in the Christian life for neutral affections, for coasting. Engage. Daniel Cox, a former jet pilot turned business leader, tells his readers in a book entitled Seize the Day that when jet fighters were first invented, they flew so fast, much faster than their propeller predecessors, so pilot ejection became a more sophisticated process. Theoretically, of course, all the pilot needed to do was push a button, clear the plane, roll forward out of the seat so the parachute then could open. But there was a problem. Some pilots, instead of letting go, would keep a grip on the seat. That'd be me. I'd be hanging on for dear life. Terrified by the speed with which they flew through the air, not to mention the G-forces on their bodies. So the engineers went back to the drawing board and came up with a solution. The new design called for a strap. One end attached to the front edge of the seat under the pilot. The other end attached to an electronic take-up reel behind the headrest. Two seconds after ejection, the electronic take-up reel would take up the slack, literally force the pilot out of his seat, freeing the parachute to open. He writes, bottom line, fighter pilots needed a device to launch them out of their seats. The question is, what will it take to launch us out of ours? That good? What will it take? In the mind of God, it is a hard-hitting letter like this. It is a reminder to be zealous for Christ. And on a day like this, We need it when millions of people around our world will play religious, make, believe, this is for real. I was copied on an email from a college student who asked for prayer. Several people in our fellowship for a guy she knew in high school and somebody sent it to me and said, isn't this wonderful? And I didn't have a chance to ask her so I'll leave all the names out. But she writes this, Back in high school, I made friends with this young man. He was one of several Jehovah's Witnesses in my school, who, by the way, believe that Jesus was created. At first, we enjoyed our common sense of humor, which built a great friendship. Sadly, he received a lot of pressure to either convert me or deny me, and not even talk to me. So four years ago, he gave me the ultimatum. Because I didn't convert, he no longer talked with me. Four years later, now, just recently, he contacted me. He said that he had realized that his faith didn't make sense. He no longer accepted that the 12 men that make up the Watchtower Society were in themselves the way to salvation. He didn't believe that anymore. It had concerned him that they had banned Greek and Hebrew to compare the original translations of the Bible to make sure their version, the New World Translation, was accurate. Most importantly, he refused to accept that the Watchtower Society had more authority than the Bible. He now considers it manipulation to keep their followers from thinking for themselves. As a result, his family has disowned him. His friends won't have anything to do with him. He finds himself more alone than he has been in his whole life. Now notice this, but he is very excited about his decision. He's been visiting churches to try to find one that honors the Bible as the only true authority. His email to me today was full of anticipation of finding a church that gives him a a strong support system. I find myself, she writes, in all of his story... Years ago, he was the most faithful of Jehovah's Witnesses. To see the change in him, despite having lost every person in his life, is amazing. There is a joy and light in him that was never there before. His pursuit of Christ and the truth of the Bible has become the most important thing in his life, and he has willingly given up everything. She ends it by saying, it's true, the Word is alive. How great is our God. Amen? Jesus Christ would say that young man is truly rich. This is his word to every one of us who are thinking of stopping halfway, of settling for being half-hearted. Maybe you're tempted today or distracted. Maybe you're disobedient. Repent. Literally invite him in, as it were, to dinner. The risen, sovereign Christ condescends to knock on your door and mine, answer it, answer it, answer it today. Answer it and surrender and welcome him into the fellowship of your heart. And then in the strength of his fellowship, follow him. And live for Him. And know one day, because He is telling the truth, we will reign with Him forever. Father, thank You for this text, the truth of our resurrected Lord, who always tells the truth. Thank You that we have life in Him because of His grace. I pray that everyone here today would answer the door, either for fellowship, certainly those who've never received You, that they would bring you in, in Jesus' name.